I really resisted it at first, in part because the um, Quaker church that I attended didn't have preaching. And then I got a job in Seattle after I graduated from law school and um, went to an unprogrammed meeting there for three years. And so there was no preaching. <laughs> it was no programming. And I felt led to speak in worship. And I used to have this terrible fear of public speaking. Um, I had a lot of anxiety about it. And so when I felt led to speak in worship, it was always faltering. And um, I had to be really sure that God was calling me to speak. And so Quakers talk about quaking and I would quake like to the point that all the people around me could tell that I had a message to give. That was Ashley Wilcox. And Ashley is a courageous, brilliant uh, preacher scholar who you can tell from that clip has an amazing journey of going from really fearing public speaking to becoming a pastor. And she's also writing a one-year lectionary focusing on the women of the scriptures. And so uh, I met Ashley on Twitter and just sort of reached out and said, I love what you're tweeting about what you're writing. Can I talk to you about it? And so when we sat down and talked, I was not disappointed. And I don't think I know you won't be either. Uh, after you get done with the conversation, connect with Ashley on Twitter. Uh, her handle is at the end of the podcast. She gives it. And um, oh, my gosh. I, I really enjoyed the insights uh, when we get to some of the passages that she uh, writes on. You're going to love them. So enjoy this podcast. Well, I'm here with Ashley Wilcox. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, Ashley, I can't even totally remember how we sort of met, and we haven't met in real life yet, sadly, but I think I just kept reading your tweets, and I was like, whoa, here is a Quaker who is writing a, a new lectionary on the women in the scriptures, and I just was so intrigued, and so I think I reached out to you, and you very kindly agreed to go, come on the show, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Um, so this is absolutely a Krista Tippett question, but I think it's a good one to start out with. Uh, what kind of spiritual tradition did you grow up in? That is a good question. Uh, so I grew up in an evangelical tradition in Alaska. I was part of a charismatic church, and that's the first church that I remember, although my parents attended an Episcopal church when I was very young. Wow. And uh, so I was really raised in the church to the point that I played baby Jesus when I was two months old in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> yes, you did. So I've played God in two plays, at least. I played mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit and Jesus. So at some point, I need to play God the parent, and then I'll have the full trinity. <laughs> I hope that can happen for you, actually. I really do. I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was raised in Alaska in an evangelical church. I went to a Christian school until eighth grade. Mm. And so my life was really centered around the church um, in my childhood. And uh, like many people in my generation, I left when I was a teenager. And it was about the church not being able to affirm queer people, the church that I was a part of. And I didn't really know many other churches. And so I felt like it was the church as a whole. 
Um, and so I left for several years yeah. and then came back and found Quakers and thank God I did because it is a very good fit for me. Yeah. So, um, and I'm curious whether, uh, you're, um, like leaving the church because, um, it wasn't inclusive. Was that because of some friends you had that were queer or was it, you know, your own study of scripture, both kind of, how, how did you come to that? It was mostly because of my own friends who were queer and yeah. I now identify as queer, but I didn't at the time. Yeah. It took yeah. me a long while to get there in part because I didn't see other queer people who looked like me. I had this idea in my head of what gay, lesbian, bisexual people looked like, and it didn't look like me. Right. Well, I, I would love to hear maybe more about that because I think, um, honestly, the more folks that I talk to in the queer community, the more I realize what diversity uh, exists within it. And even some sort of like, you know, at, at times like you're not queer enough or, you know, like there can be really some really sort of bizarre, well, maybe, maybe not bizarre, maybe totally normal um, that, that I think I'm just learning that I didn't know, you know, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, a lot of this comes down to story. Like if we only hear one particular story, then we think that that's the way things are. But if we hear a variety of stories, then people can recognize themselves in their stories. And so that's one of my approaches to the Bible, but it's one of my approaches to life and theology in general. I love that. Absolutely. 100%. Um, the narrative of someone's life, your own life of God, God's people, the narrative found in the scriptures that is a narrative that's unfolding still, I think, is the way that we can hold it as expansively, I think, as it needs to be held. And I think that's, I mean, I've actually, um, you know, Quaker, um, the Friends community, uh, I, of course, I love Parker Palmer. Uh, I've never worshipped in a Quaker, you know, in environment, but I've always, I've always sort of held it in high esteem and, and also like, okay, so just people sit in silence until someone talks? Like, what if the person that talks is a total idiot, you know? And what if that idiot is me, right? So anyway, um, I, I, I'm curious to hear more about that. But anyway, so um, I want to get back to I want to get back to the to what you find beautiful about the Quaker tradition, the French, the Friends tradition in a minute. But I want to go uh, back to when you were in college, you went to Chile for a year on a study abroad program. And it sounded like uh, that was a pretty significant time for you in more ways than one. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it was a significant time. I think living in another country is significant for anyone and not speaking the language, uh, being seen as a foreigner is significant. Uh, and so a couple things happened that were both difficult and challenging. The first is that I was sexually assaulted while I was living there. And it was about halfway through my year there. And it was just unexpected and really traumatic. And I had good support from friends there, but I was living in a different country and I didn't know very many people. And so I felt pretty lost. And during that time, I wasn't going to church much, but I started attending mass in mm -hmm. Spanish. Mm -hmm. And that was really different from my uh, experience growing up. I didn't go to mass at all and in a different language and just a different culture. And so I started enjoying that and uh, especially the focus on Mary in yeah. the Chilean culture. 
and I lived near this large hill in Santiago and I would spend my Sundays, I'd go to mass and it was pretty short and then close by was this hill. And so I'd walk to the top of the hill and it was a mile or two up. It was pretty long. And there was this enormous statue of Mary at the top. And I would just sit there with the statue of Mary Mm -hmm. and just wait and sit with her until I felt like I could walk back down. And it was my Saturday worship, both the mass and sitting with Mary. And I remember talking to one of my roommate's mothers, uh, my roommates were Chilean and uh, my roommate's mother came to visit and she asked me if I believed in God. And I wasn't sure at that point I had left the church. I didn't know quite what I believed. And so I told her that I said, I don't know. And she said, but do you believe in Mary? And I said, Oh yeah, I absolutely believe in Mary. (laughs) And she was like, that's good. That's the important thing. As long as you believe in Mary. Oh, I love that. There was just this really different approach to scripture and worship and Mary and women in the Bible from everything I'd grown up in. Yeah. Well, I love that. And, and can I, I I, want to follow up on that. Like, what do you think it was about Mary that was appealing and that that sort of sounded even healing? Like, what do you think it was? She felt so welcoming to me. And I think that's part of the Catholic tradition of being able to pray through Mary to God, Mm -hmm. that she was a person um, and had this connection to God and had given birth to God and was just there. And I think having this enormous statue, I knew it wasn't going to move. And so I could just stay there with her. Like she was there with me. Yeah. Um, You know, I sometimes wonder um, if the, you know, sort of Mariology, the theology of Mary, we, 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 like, it's almost closer to what we should believe about Jesus. You know what I mean? Like there's this divine human connection mysteriously somehow, but we really understand that Mary was human. She gave birth. She, you know, um, and, um, but I think growing up, many of us who grew up evangelical sort of had to believe in a robot Jesus who was human kind of, but really knew everything that everyone was going to say, knew, you know, pre- pre-understood everybody's feeling, you know, versus actually having a human experience where he was surprised, sad, angry. Um, and I mean, we'll get to it in some of the uh, in- interpretations that you have of certain scripture passages where, you know, you sort of dive into the humanity of Jesus being angry, having a bad day, like sort of having to be reminded of what he really truly believed. I love that. We'll get to that later. But anyway, so I, 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 that's part of what I am intrigued with by, um, by, by Mary too. And I love that you had that experience. Um, that's so cool. So talk a little bit more about the Quaker church in general, sort of how you found it. You're, you're in law school. Um, which I, I, why law school too? Like I, I do have to ask that before the Quaker thing, why law school? And do you currently practice law? I do. I work part-time in law and, um, you know, ministry doesn't always pay all the bills. So Good Lord. Right now I am writing a book and I am working in law. Good Lord. Yeah. So um, there are a number of reasons I went to law school. And actually my experiences in Chile had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was living in Chile, I volunteered at a women's shelter. And um, at that point, and maybe still, I'm not sure, uh, divorce was illegal in Chile. And Whoa. so these women who were with abusive spouses had no way to um, legally leave them. 
And that really struck me of uh, seeing these women in really difficult situations and the law not helping them. And so I had not planned to go to law school. I have a lot of lawyers and judges in my family. And so it was always something that was an option, okay. but, um, it was really that year that made me decide to go to law school. And so I, um, took a year off and then applied and went and I, uh, focused mostly on international and comparative law while I was in law school, and I thought I would work overseas. Uh, but then by the time I graduated, I felt more like working for local government, and so I did that too. Okay. Wow. You have quite an expansive repertoire of skills and passions. I love it. Uh, okay, so tell me about the Quaker Church. So you found a Quaker Church, and uh, and even sort of, if you would, you know, sort of give us a brief definition, because I think most people don't even know, and and even I didn't even know that there's like, there's, um, you know, sort of different layers or levels of certain types of services. Some of them include singing and prayer. Some of them include just science. So, uh, why were you drawn to it, and what do you love about it? Yeah. So in law school, I found that uh, I enjoyed the work, but culturally it wasn't a great fit. Law school is just very competitive. And especially in the first year, I felt like my classmates and I just didn't get along very well, except my roommate. She yeah. and I got along quite well. Yeah. And uh, we had both grown up in the church and left it, but we were thinking that finding a church would be a good way to um, find a different social scene. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, to be with people who weren't just law students. Yeah. And uh, I think we were both ready to go back to worship. And so no we small thing going probably, to... right? I mean, right? I mean, just think about that statement, ready to go back to worship. <laughs> it took a while. I yeah. mean, it was probably about five or six years yeah. um, between when I left and when I went back. And I honestly didn't know that I ever would. Yeah. Um, but we were, and I knew by then that there were more liberal churches. I had met friends from um, more progressive churches, places that had women who preached and uh, didn't believe that you know queer people were all going to hell. <laughs> and yeah, and so um, my roommate and I were just church hopping. We went to a Lutheran church, we went to an Episcopal church, and we liked a lot of them. And then I went to my aunt and uncle's house over Thanksgiving, and they had been going to a Quaker church in Portland, mm -hmm. Oregon. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, your parents said you're looking for a church, and we really think Quakers might be a good fit for you. And I just hadn't really heard of Quakers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my roommate and I went online and found a Quaker church in um, Salem, Oregon, where we were living. It was Freedom Friends Church. And so we're like, well, we'll try this one. And that was just the place for me. I really um, found my home there. And so you asked about the divisions in Quakers. The two big differences are unprogrammed and programmed worship. And so in unprogrammed worship, People sit in silence for an hour or more and wait for God to speak to or through anyone. And Quakers sit facing each other and just hope and pray that God will speak. Um, and then programmed worship has more elements of churches you would recognize it. There is singing and prayer and often a sermon. Um, there's usually some silence, but not usually as long as mm -hmm. in an unprogrammed worship. Mm -hmm. And the church that I ended up in was semi-programmed. And mm -hmm. so it was basically half and half. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, we did singing and prayer and then um, had about 40 minutes of silent open worship. And that was perfect for me. I grew up singing in church and in choirs, and I love singing and prayer. And so for me, that kind of settled me and helped me start listening. And then I had the 40 minutes of open worship and the silence just spoke to me. I mean, we say that God may speak through another person or may God may speak directly. And it, it spoke to me. Hmm. So I stayed. That's, that's really powerful. Um, I'm just curious too, like, was the singing acapella? Was it instrumentation? Was it both? So one of the eventual pastors of the church is a musician, mm -hmm. and she at that point was leading the music and was playing her guitar most of the time, but mm -hmm. sometimes it was a cappella. Sure. And it was a small group. That church um, was often like, I don't know, six to ten, mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes as many as 20, but yeah. like a small community where we could all get to know each other. Beautiful. So let's get into preaching. When did you first start preaching and how did you get into it? And what was it like at first and how is it now? I really resisted it at first hmm. in part because the um, Quaker church that I attended didn't have preaching. Yeah. And then I got a job in Seattle after I graduated from law school and um, went to an unprogrammed meeting there for mm -hmm. three years. And so there was no preaching. <laughs> it was no programming. And I felt led to speak in worship, and I used to have this terrible fear of public speaking. Um, I had a lot of anxiety about it. And so when I felt led to speak in worship, it was always faltering, and um, I had to be really sure that God was calling me to speak. And so Quakers talk about quaking, and I would quake like to the point that all the people around me could tell that I had a message to give. Yeah, it's, um, it's time, Ashley. No, go ahead. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. honestly, yeah, 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 yeah. And people talk to me afterwards. They're like, if I know that you have a message, then you know, you have a message. Yes. That's awesome. And, um, yeah. And so, and they would encourage me to speak longer. And this is kind of opposite of most of what Quakers say to each other. Sure, sure. Um, but I just, I had a really hard time with it. And I remember I used to go and sit in a UCC church that was across the street from where I used to work in mm -hmm. Seattle, downtown Seattle. And they had one of those big pulpits. It was a huge church, one of those old congregational churches. And I had a vision of myself up in that pulpit. And I was just like, no, <laughs> I don't preach. Like, I don't have anywhere to preach. Mm but I could see myself doing it. Um, and so I carried that with me and I was discerning a call to ministry at that point, which to Quakers is different from other denominations. Uh, you might not um, go to seminary. You might be called to do all sorts of things. It's not the kind of right. typical preaching, leading a church path. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I was discerning that, but it didn't necessarily involve preaching, but mm -hmm. I kept feeling led to give these messages in worship in larger and larger settings. And finally I was like, clearly I am called to this. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so finally, years later, I was back in my church in Salem and I gave my first sermon there and <laughs> I had been giving talks and speaking out of worship. And so I felt 
it felt very comfortable by that point. Um, and so my first sermon was on the women going to the cave or to the tomb mm. after um, Jesus died. And so it was an Easter morning sermon. We decided to do worship with a sermon that day. And, um, and so my first sermon, I talked about death. Yes. And I talked about these women who didn't know what was going to happen and how they were doing what they did in their tradition. They were caring for the person that they loved and how that had been my experience too. When I had had loved ones who died, the women in my tradition also would bring food, would go to the family. We had our own traditions that would follow. Wow. That's cool. That is so good. Um, and what a beginning to, to be able to preach on that passage for your first sort of real sermon. Cause that, I mean, you know, essentially the first apostles, the first evangelists, the first preachers, the first, you know, are women after the <laughs> resurrection. And, and I don't know how we missed that or so many people miss that, but it's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, Okay, so so eventually you had an idea to write a new kind of lectionary. So I want to talk about that because you're currently writing it and you can talk about you can talk to to whatever extent you want to because I know it's like when I'm writing it's like, ah, you know, I, I I want to talk about it and I don't want to talk about it. So full freedom to to do to say whatever you want to say. But when did you first get the idea? that, okay, there's the revised common lectionary, but maybe there's a need for something else. So it wasn't actually my idea. It was uh-huh. my partner's idea. Perfect. <laughs> which he reminds me of a lot. Yeah. Um, so I started my own church a few years ago, and it was called Church of Mary Magdalene. And oh, I love the, that name, by the way. When I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, Mary Magdalene's been an important person for yeah. me in my ministry. And um, Have you seen the film yet, by the way? like the I haven't. Yeah. No, I'm interested in it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Keep going, but yeah. I, was, I was curious. Yeah, yeah, I'll probably see it at some point. So I started this church, and um, it was my first time preaching regularly. I had been preaching a lot, but always kind of as the um, you know guest coming in, yep, yep. and it's really different when you do weekly preaching than when you're the guest. <laughs> uh, and I liked it. And up until that point, I had often used the Revised Common Lectionary to decide on my sermon. Mm -hmm. Not always, um, because within Quakerism, we don't follow it. A lot of preachers do, but it's not required. It's not expected. And so I would often go there first to find my preaching text and to see what was going on. And if there was something about women, I would automatically choose that text. But a lot of the time it isn't. And I was feeling this pull between um, the community of the Revised Common Lectionary of being a part of all of these churches who are preaching on the same text, and especially on Twitter. I mean, you probably Mm -hmm. see this. People are preaching on the same text. They're talking about that Mm -hmm. text that week. And it's fun to bounce ideas off each other and see what's going on. Um, But in this church, I was feeling more and more led to preach about women. Those were the passages that people in the church were really connecting with. And so I did a few sermon series and set them up. I wasn't doing all of the preaching. Um, one on Esther, and I did one on um, uh, 
Evil Queens and Wicked Stepmothers. Yes. That's <laughs> yeah. a great like series. If you're going to do a series, that's great. Yeah. Well, there are so many of them in the Bible yeah. and um, reading them empathetically. Like, can we relate to these women? Mm-hmm. What do these passages have to t- teach us? Why don't we talk about them? And so I was getting close to the end of the first year and saying to my partner that I was feeling this tension between the Revised Common Lectionary and wanting to preach on women. And um, he just said to me, we were in the car, and he's like, well, why don't you just write your own? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, write my own lectionary. (laughs) And it was just one of those ideas that sparked. And I was like, yes, Mm -hmm. we need a lectionary about women. And especially because the Revised Common Lectionary tends to leave out passages about women and um, even within a long, larger text, they will cut out the part mm-hmm. about the woman <laughs> in mm-hmm. the middle of it. I, I um, teach preaching at uh, Candler School of Theology, and my students complain about this. Mm-hmm. We have one text, and it's about David, and the middle part is about his wife, Michal, and the Revised Common Lectionary cuts it out. <laughs> and so, especially my, um, the women in my section just get so upset about that. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I decided to put together my own lectionary and at first it was just to have something to preach on. And it came together very quickly, a year of, um, Old Testament and New Testament texts. So one for every Sunday and for every holiday. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are, there's the Revised Common Lectionary, there are other lectionaries, the Narrative Lectionary, um, the African American Lectionary, uh, Year D. And so this um, format is available in a lot of different places, but up until that point, no one had created one based on women. And so it's women and feminine images of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of those in the Bible, too. Oh, yeah. Um. It's so great. I mean, like, uh, so our, our church yesterday, um, a woman named Becky preached and a guy named Will, a young guy led, and he, he led us through, this is my father's world. Right. But he, mm-hmm. he added some verses, uh, to include, this is my mother's world. And he really explained it in such a gorgeous way. You know, he said, the Bible has so many great metaphors for God. It's, God is father for sure, but also shepherd, also rock, also tower, also mother hen. And, and, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, and, and, and he said, so we're going to sing God as mother as well. And, and, and for some of you that may be just old hat and so comfortable with it for others of you, it may be uncomfortable, but no matter where you're at, we can hold that tension together. And so let's, let's try it. And, uh, of course I loved it, but, but I also love the fact that I'm probably in a room where some people don't love it, but we're doing it together. We're trying it together. And I felt like that was so expansive. Um, so I, in, and so I love that there is going to be a, a, a women's lectionary, women and feminine images for God written by not only a woman, but a queer woman. I, I think that that, um, not to p- pigeonhole you in any way, but I think you're going to see, uh, certain aspects of the scriptures, from a perspective, I think that is probably more true to the gospel than most. I mean, and I don't want to overstate that, but I think, I, I think it's probably true, you know? So I'm, I'm grateful for your voice. Thank you. In that. I hope that was okay to say today. Was... Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. And 
It's interesting. I think what you're getting at is that I'm in um, a more marginalized group as yes. a queer person. Yeah, and I feel that. And at the same time, like I am a white woman, like I know that I am right. in a privileged place. And something that I've been struggling with in this is I am a cisgender woman, and so trying to avoid gender essentialism in this and not leave out um, trans and non-binary people when I'm talking right. about women all the time. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's you know, of course, it's nuanced. And um, what I've read from you so far, though, there's such a sensitivity, I think, that that intention will win out. And, of course, um, we don't get 100%. <laughs> understanding right. <laughs> sadly as writers, but, uh, I think you're going to get pretty close. I, you, you wrote about, I, I can't remember whether it was a professor or someone that maybe, uh, at the college that you teach at or the seminary that you teach at talks about a thing called hybrid vigor. And could you, and I love that. Mm -hmm. So could you explain what that is and why it's important for someone who's teaching preaching? Absolutely. So the professor is Ted Smith, and he's a professor of preaching at Candler School of Theology, which is part of Emory University. And he was my professor when I went to Candler. I took two classes from him, and now I've been his TA for three years now. I was his head TA this year. And he talks about hybrid vigor, and he tries to hire TAs who have hybrid vigor. He hires um, both graduate students, PhD students, and preachers in the community, and tries to get a pretty good cross-section, um, both in terms of denomination and racially and experience, sexual identity. So, like, but just quickly define hybrid vigor. It's, it's sure. taking, yeah. Yeah, so um, it is taking things from different traditions and taking the best from those traditions. And so, um, taking myself as an example, I come from an evangelical tradition, and I went to a Methodist seminary, and I am a Quaker, and so I'm able to see the strengths in all of those traditions and um, bring them together into this kind of farming metaphor of hybrid vigor. Yes, yes. Well, I, I just, when I read that, I thought, well, yeah, that that is a move forward for um, what, you know, Christianity, spirituality, whatever you want to call it. Um, because I think we are much better when, you know, the truth is the truth and, and we can rest in that. And we're just better when we can see it through the lens of different traditions. I think we can see a bigger and more holistic picture of humanity, of God, of the scriptures, all the while, I think understanding our view is limited. It's going to always be limited. But 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 when we understand that that our view is limited, it then drives us to saying we need more than one view. That's what I like about that, and I love that that language, hybrid vigor. Woo! I mean, I, Ted Smith, <laughs> come on, baby, love that, love that. Um, okay, so back to um, back to uh, can I call it the women's lectionary? Can can I call yes, it that? That's the okay. working title. So back to the women's lectionary. You you preached a year of it at, at your mm -hmm. church, correct? Yep. Uh, I mean, you, just, you created it and you went through it. Um, uh, first of all, who goes to your church? I'm just curious. And I know there's probably a lot of people. And then how was it like to preach through that for a year? 
Yeah. So I actually closed the church in December. Um, so it's no longer meeting. Um, but we did, uh, use the women's lectionary for a year and I didn't follow it in the order, um, (laughs) that I wrote it at that point. I was just kind of jumping around to what I liked and did some sermon series because people liked it there. It was a very small church in person. It, um, uh, had, mostly queer people Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people who were part of other churches because we met on Wednesday night. And so people who were um, leadership in other churches would come on Wednesday night because this was a place where they could be and worship and not have to lead anything. Mm -hmm. And I would invite my friends from Candler to come and preach and preachers in the community, um, highlighting women's voices in the preaching. And so it was always very small in person. Um, but we did a live stream and it kind of took off online. We had a lot of people watching the live stream on Facebook and connecting with us on Twitter. And so I would hear from people all over the world in Australia and in Ireland (laughs) and different parts of this country. And even people who were here in Atlanta, um, who were not able to physically get to a church and this was accessible to them. They could be part of a church online. Yep. That's awesome. That's great. Love that. Okay. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, so I read a couple of your, uh, you know, your interpretations, your, uh, of, of different lections. Uh, I especially liked the, the Mark seven Syrophoenician woman where you went with that. Would you talk a little bit about that or, or do you, is that too, is that sharing too much? Is that? No, I'm happy to talk about it. Okay. So first um, explain, you know, cause lots of listeners, I think Syrophoenician woman who Mark seven, what? Um, so <laughs> right. you know, give, give just a thumbnail sketch of the, of the portion and then, uh, and then if you would get into what you did with it, it was delicious. I thought. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the story of the Syrophoenician woman is a story of um, Jesus healing, but it's at a time when he was trying to get away from the crowd. And I always love the Jesus trying to get away from the crowd stories. I relate to that so much. Yes. Because he's putting out so much. And so he's in a house getting away from people. And this woman, who we don't know her name, comes and finds him. And... Uh, her daughter is sick and she is hoping that Jesus will heal the daughter and she's unable to do anything else. She's tried everything else. And Jesus is really upset with her. And, um, he says basically like, I'm here for the Jewish people first and not for you and, um, calls her a dog. Yeah. It's grisly. It's sort of gruesome. Yeah, it's not the Jesus that we Uh expect. Um, But she comes back and she says, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And Jesus changes his mind Mm -hmm. because of what she says Mm -hmm. and says, because of your health or because of your faith, your daughter is healed. And this story has always bothered me and captured my imagination. And um, I actually... um, cite one of my students in uh, the lectionary that I'm working on on that passage because she pointed out that we often think of the Syrophoenician woman as a poor woman. In some Bibles, she's called an immigrant. But really, if you look at where Jesus was physically, he was in her territory. Like he was the outsider in this. 
And we don't know that she was poor. She may have been quite wealthy. And so uh, my student, uh, Leah, turned this around mm -hmm. and said that um, she was a privileged woman who always got what she wanted. And if you read it in that way, then... Jesus isn't saying that she's a dog, but more that she's like a wolf at the door, that she is one of these predators <laughs> that's coming for the Jewish people who were a marginalized population, mm -hmm. and that he needed to focus on his people who were starving first before sharing with these privileged people. Mm -hmm. And so my student is Leah Clements, I should cite her full name, and when she preached that sermon, it was one of those sermons where I had holy envy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because it was a sermon that I wished I had preached. It was so good. And, um, and I haven't been able to look at that story the same way since. And so when I was writing about it, I wanted to incorporate that perspective on the story. Yeah, it's delicious. I mean, I, I think it, it, it turns, well, it exposes the assumptions that we have, that we read the scriptures with, you know, even the, these, these familiar ones that, we don't typically see Jesus as the outsider. We don't, you know, any woman that we, I think, read, especially in the first century, we assume that she's, you know, probably poor and that, and that she's des so desperate that she finally reaches out to Jesus and in her desperation. And, and the fact that it might not have been like that, that we can use our imagination to say, well, what if, what if, what if she was privileged? And, and what if she did change Jesus' mind? And why did Jesus change his mind? And why did he... Why was he so cranky? And and I loved your interpretation of that, you know. And, and so, um, uh, so so there's that. And then, is there any other one that you know, that especially like one of your darlings, one of your favorites that you'd like to share? Well, I was thinking about I'm you know working on this right now, yeah. and one of the things that I've been noticing and going back to these passages that are so familiar is the things that we leave out or that we forget. And so what I'm reading right now and writing on is the story of uh, Rachel and Leah. Mm. And uh, my sister's name is Rachel. And so we've always been interested in that story. And she had a Leah in her class mm. <laughs> growing up. Um, but as I was working with it, I realized that we always call it the story of Rachel and Leah, and there are two other women in these passages that we very rarely talk about, and those are the maids or um, the enslaved people, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah. And so we know the story that when um, Jacob wanted payment, Laban gave him his daughters, Rachel and Leah, in marriage, um, but then just in parentheses mm -hmm. in the biblical story in the English translation where I'm reading it, um, he also gave Zilpah and Bilhah to his daughters as maids, it says in the NRSV, and these are people who um, were enslaved, were used for their bodies, eventually were the mothers of Jacob's sons. And so I want to bring out some of these stories that we don't focus on and think about the layers of privilege there mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we talk a lot about the patriarchy in the Bible, and this is a clearly patriarchal story of, you know, a father giving away his daughters in marriage. But even Rachel and Leah have a layer of privilege that Zilva and Bilhah do not have. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I mean, geez, the, I don't know if, if you're a Handmaid's Tale watcher. It's a pretty grisly story, but that's exactly like for any of you listeners who watched Handmaid's Tale, that's actually that passage is where it is, is how they, they, this, um, uh, fascist, um, government that ends up rising up, um, gets the theology for handmaids. I mean, it's exactly what, what those two women were. Um, and, and I think again, it's like we, um, Game of Thrones too. If you can't handle Game of Thrones, that's probably what First and Second Kings is essentially like. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I'm not saying watch Game of Thrones. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying like it was grisly, right? It was, and this is part of our Bible. Yes, these are passages in the Bible, and so we need to grapple with that. <laughs> we yeah. can't just ignore them. Yeah. Uh, okay, Ashley, this is so good. Um, we're out of time, but I want to. I want to, so if people would like to get in, like, follow your work and make sure they uh, know when this book is coming out, can they get on your email list? Or how, how do people get in touch with you so they can follow your content? Yes. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Ashley M. Wilcox and Facebook at author Ashley M. Wilcox. And my website is AshleyMWilcox.com. And you can join my email list there in the contact. Okay, folks, I'm going to put all those things in the show notes. So just steveweens.com slash show notes, or just go into the notes section, wherever you're listening, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever, uh, and follow Ashley on Twitter. She's great on Twitter. I, I follow her, um, and on Facebook as well. And then I would encourage you, you know, to sign up for her email list. Cause you're going to want to know when this book comes out. Do, do we, do, do we have a release date yet? <laughs> So it's supposed to come out September of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, Westminster John Knox Press, and it's called The Women's Lectionary. Okay. All right, Ashley, thank you so much. This was so fun. Um, thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for this opening up your, your mind and your heart and your passion. Uh, follow, again, follow Ashley, The Women's Lectionary, September 2020. Uh, and we will make sure to remind you all next year in the fall uh, about this great resource. Thanks, Ashley. Have a wonderful rest of your day and, and, and week. Thanks, Steve. You too. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>